If this is a drastic reduction in Russia's assault on Ukraine, I hope we never see what an escalation looks like. The lead starts right now. Russian bombs rain down upon civilian parts of Ukraine after the Kremlin claimed its attacks would stop. CNN's on the ground where one missile struck. Also ahead, President Biden's hour-long call to Ukraine's president and his new offer of assistance, while Biden's also being confronted with a protest right outside the White House and new calls for action from the parents of an American Marine detained in Russia. Plus, the threat of dangerous spring storms in the hours ahead after one tornado already touched down and wreaked havoc in Arkansas. This is CNN Breaking News. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we start today with breaking news in our world lead, the empty promises from the Kremlin, despite Russian government claims that it planned to reduce the number of troops around Kiev and Chernihiv. The Pentagon says there is not any evidence Russian troops are actually going home, and Ukraine's Ministry of Defense said today the Russian army is continuing a, quote, full-scale armed aggression. New video in the western suburb of Irpin shows homes decimated, cars mangled, playgrounds empty. Chernihiv's mayor said there was a, quote, colossal attack on civilian apartment buildings, shopping malls, even libraries there. At least 25 wounded, according to local authorities. No word yet on how many innocent Ukrainians were killed. In Mariupol, entire city blocks have been obliterated. New satellite images today revealing what five weeks of shelling looks like. And we're now learning a Red Cross warehouse in central Mariupol was hit by at least two military strikes. The Biden administration claims there are growing tensions between Vladimir Putin and his top defense officials. According to a U.S. official, the United States government believes the Russian leader has become aware that his senior advisors have been, quote, misinforming him about how, quote, badly the Russian military is performing in Ukraine because Putin's advisors are, of course, too scared to tell him the truth. Let's get straight to CNN's chief international anchor, Christiana Mampour, who's live for us in Kiev. And Christiana, the suburbs around Ukraine's capital, as you know, have been some of the hardest hit areas, uh, even after Russia claimed they would de-escalate military operations. You visited a nearby warehouse hit by a missile. Tell us what you found. Well, yes, and Jake, even as we talk right now, I can hear the distant rumble of, of, of shelling. I don't know whether it's out or incoming, but it is a noise. And we heard a very, very, very busy and noisy night last night, right after the Russians said that they were de-escalating. So we went to a suburb of Kiev about an hour away, which is uh, north of here, and that had been hit, and it's continually under Russian bombardment. Here's what we found. Missiles have struck the town of Brovery, a suburb of eastern Kyiv, twice in the last week alone. This tangled, jagged mass of metal and cladding is what's left of a massive warehouse that stored food, paper and the beer and alcohol that's no longer allowed to be consumed under martial law. This happened at almost exactly the same time that the Russians were announcing their de-escalation around Kyiv. This missile struck right here. Imagine the good fortune of the truck driver who was loading up to take crates and packages and boxes of food and supplies to the supermarkets in this town and also to Kyiv. He managed to survive. 
We are told three workers were killed, but bravery has never fallen to Russian forces. Directly west of here, Russian and Ukrainian troops have been fiercely fighting over the town of Irpin, and now it does appear that the Russians are retreating from here. A clear indication that this war around Kyiv has simply not gone the way Russia planned. Whatever the reason, Moscow says it's retrenching, their intercepted radio conversations verified by the New York Times show their soldiers in distress from the very start. This was west of the capital, in Makariv, in the very first days of the war, already signaling the focus on civilians once their own so-called properties were out of harm's way. This security video shows a Russian armored vehicle just blowing up a car, instantly killing the elderly couple inside. Ukraine has lost its fighters too. Here in the Brovary Cemetery, Boris the caretaker shows us freshly dug graves. This guy, this soldier died on the very first day of the war. It's raining, it's drizzling here today. It's almost as if this city is crying as it mourns its war dead because all of these graves are for the fighters of this place who've fallen in combat since this war began. This grave has been dug, but the family can't yet bury their son, a soldier who was fighting in a village 15 kilometers away, but held by the Russians. They haven't yet been able to get his body released. And even Boris's heart breaks when he tells me about a father who's just lost his son, his only child, and who asked, what do I have to live for now? So, amidst the tragedy, of course, there is a national effort. President Zelensky has talked to the Norwegian parliament today, and he is calling for more weapons. He says that they desperately need things like javelins and other, you know, anti-tank and anti-aircrafts that they are running out of because they're using them so much. Jake? CNN's Christian Amanpour in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you so much, as always. Today, President Biden promised to send 500 million additional dollars in aid to Ukraine after speaking with President Zelensky for nearly an hour. This time, as CNN's senior White House correspondent Caitlin Collins reports, the money will cover direct budgetary aid, such as government salaries, among other matters, according to a U.S. official. President Biden speaking with President Zelensky for over an hour today as Russia sends mixed signals in Ukraine. It is increasingly clear uh, that Putin's war has been a strategic blunder. Biden promising Zelensky $500 million in new aid to help with salaries and other expenses as his government confronts Russia's ongoing attacks. Our role is to do everything we can to strengthen Ukraine. The latest call between Biden and Zelensky coming as the U.S. voices deep skepticism that Russia is actually backing off its invasion. If the Russians are serious about de-escalating, because that's their claim here, then they should send them home. But they're not doing that. The U.S. declassifying new intelligence today, revealing that President Putin is deeply frustrated with his top military aides. 
According to a U.S. official, Putin feels misled by the Russian military and didn't know his forces were using and losing enlistees in Ukraine, which the U.S. shows a clear breakdown in the flow of accurate information to the Russian president. The new U.S. intelligence says that Putin's senior advisors are too afraid to tell him the truth. Biden declining to say more about the newly declassified intelligence. Can you comment on the declassified intelligence that he doesn't trust his military leadership? No, In Washington, the parents of Trevor Reed, the former U.S. Marine imprisoned in Russia since 2019, held a protest outside the White House as he begins his second hunger strike. We wanted to uh, be here to bring attention to Trevor's case and to let them know that we did not forget. We're waiting for that phone call. His parents are calling for action and a meeting with President Biden. They say they were promised. I'm going to see if I can get to see them. They're Today? Good, they're good people. I have them. We're trying to work that out. And Jake, back to this sense of mistrust among Putin and his top military advisors. We should note this comes as the White House has been telling us that top Russian defense official, officials are not calling back their U.S. counterparts and haven't done so for the last several weeks. And when you talk to officials here at the White House, Jake, about what primarily they believed is behind Putin, not knowing the full extent of what's happening with this invasion of Ukraine, they say it's primarily because of two reasons. One, he was so severely isolated during the pandemic, so scared of getting COVID-19, but also because they are too scared to tell him the truth about what's going on. And that leads to him getting these incomplete or overly optimistic reports, Jake. Kaylin Collins at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Republican Congresswoman Victoria Sparks of Indiana joins me now. She is the first and only Ukrainian-born member of the U.S. Congress. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. So, uh, I want to start with the fact that you still have friends and family in Ukraine, including your 95-year-old grandmother. How is your family doing? Uh, what do Ukrainians need today? Well, I think, you know, everyone is in a very difficult situation in Ukraine now. There is a huge humanitarian crisis inside the country. There is a huge humanitarian crisis outside the country happening in Eastern Europe. And they really need to have better defensive assistance to make sure that they continue to hold the ground and put more pressure on Russia. You know, the city that actually where my grandma is, uh, you know, being actually promised by Russians, you know, uh, to be one of the cities at Chernihiv, not to be shelled and suppose that they would be, you know, taking the troops out. But as a matter of fact, they've been shelling the city all night. And I made a call to this morning uh, to a family friend, and I was with him for probably less than a minute on the call, and I could hear rockets exploding next to him nonstop. So they've been shelling the city that they promised, you know, that they're going to pull out from. So they're not very serious. So there needs to be more pressure for them to get them to the table. That must just be terrifying to, to, to talk to family and hear that in the background. Um, today, President Biden told President Zelensky that the U.S. government would provide Ukraine with an additional $500 million in direct budgetary aid to help pay salaries, keep the government running. Um, is that enough? Well, I think it's also just what kind of aid we're providing. We need to make sure that they diversify in their defense capabilities, that they're able to have some defenses of the safe passages and humanitarian corridors, and they have ability to defend the sky and from people being slaughtered and killed. So I think it's important for us to be able to help them with that support. We also gave it almost $7 billion of humanitarian aid, and we need to have some oversight what's happening with that and where really it's going, because it's not on the ground. I 
saw it with my own eyes and I hear from people over there and we just have parliamentarians from Ukraine coming yesterday and they saw there is no the tallest no presence of major organization on the ground so we need to look into that because it's not implemented properly and people are suffering a lot of people are dying and will continue dying later this hour Biden administration officials are going to provide a classified briefing to members of the House of Representatives on Ukraine uh, are you going to attend and, and what questions uh, do you have for the Biden administration? Well, I think, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, uh, go to that briefing and I'm going to have a question. So we need to ask what about actions and results and what's really been done and what hasn't been done. Because there are a lot of things that we talk about. It. There are pages of pages of promised things, but what was actually was done. And we need to make sure that we have a speed and a scale in the help that we're providing and these people can, you know, keep the country surviving from this major aggression and atrocity and make sure that they can deter from aggression that can affect more of Europe and the whole world. So I think it's a very important situation and speed and scale and strategy is very, very important in situations like that. Russian and Ukrainian officials uh, say that the, the talks, the diplomatic talks in Istanbul uh, right now uh, are yielding some progress. There, there might even be a, a meeting between Putin and Zelensky. That's according to Ukraine's presidential advisor, do you think that might actually happen or do you share the Biden administration's concerns that these diplomatic talks are, are really just a, an exercise in futility? Well, I, you know, I think diplomatic talks are important, but I think Russia needs to feel more pressure to be serious to actually have this talk. So I think the more pressure Russia is going to get, the more serious they're going to become to have a conversation how to stop this insanity in Europe. You know, and I think that's why it's important. They're regrouping right now, and I probably have another attack because they really you know, got themselves in trouble. So I think it's important that Ukrainians regroup and show the strengths, and then they'll be willing to get to the table. But I think we need to get them to the table able to be able to have a conversation because this atrocity insanity and it's a major crisis has to be stopped before it's escalated even further because it's not going to be very good if it does. Let's talk about one of the efforts to, to increase the, the pressure on Putin. There's legislation, as you know, that suspends trade relations between uh, the U.S. and Russia and the U.S. and Belarus. That legislation sailed through the House of Representatives where you worked two weeks ago with overwhelming bipartisan support. The bill's been Stuck in the Senate for a number of reasons, uh, competing priorities on the Senate floor, an upcoming uh, Easter recess. Uh, what's your message to your Senate colleagues about that legislation to, to suspend trade uh, status with, with Belarus and, and Russia? Well, I think it's important for the West to show that we are serious about it and that, that you know, the consequences of this crisis are going to be permanent to them. It's not temporal because they're hoping that West is going to do the talk and then as always not do enforcement and they're going to be avoid a lot of different sanctions and a lot of things that really can you know, be very painful for them too. And I think that is important for Senate to take this issue also seriously. And I do, you know, we have a little bit, you know, check and balances with the branch, you know, but it's important. I try to work on a bicameral basis and I'll try to reach out to some of my colleagues on the Senate side. A lot of them understand the importance of it, but I think, you know, it's, it's, it's very important to have real 
you know, actions, not just words and talks. And Russia need to understand that the West is serious, and Europe is serious in a lot of these issues. And I want, I think, in some of the issues on financial front, the United States can lead even more, not just always follow the Europe. And I think we have an ability to do it. And I think that will actually bring send a very real message, you know, to all you know adversaries around the world and allies around the world that United States is serious. United States Congress is serious about you know having a real actions to make sure that we deter for the aggressions we do it on the sanctions from a defensive help and also you know for the humanitarian help because it can destabilize Europe very seriously and, mm-hmm. and we have to do with that. Congresswoman Victoria Sparks of Indiana, thank you so much for your time today. And we'll be thinking and praying for your friends and family in Ukraine. Coming up, entire city blocks gone. The new satellite imaging that underscores the ruthless nature of Putin's assault on Ukraine. Plus, sources telling CNN the Justice Department is ramping up its investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter. Exactly what investigators are examining and the next step that could unfold soon. Stay with us. In our world lead, if you you look on the left of your screen, that's Kharkiv City Hall before Russia started attacking Ukraine. That's on the left. On the right, that's after heavy Russian strikes. This was the beautiful city of Irpin with a bustling town square. This is before the invasion. Now, Irpin, some neighborhoods have been bombed beyond recognition. Perhaps one of the, the starkest contrasts is in the port city of Mariupol. CNN's Phil Black now examines new images of the catastrophic devastation inflicted by Putin's Russia. On the same day, Russia said it would limit attacks on Chernihiv. Its forces rained munitions down across shopping and residential areas. Russia's purported goodwill gesture didn't prevent another difficult, painful night for this city. Chernihiv's mayor, Vladislav Atrashenko, says Russia increased the intensity of its strikes. He says 25 people were wounded in a colossal attack. Chernihiv is cut off, surrounded. Ukrainian defenders are holding off Russia's soldiers, while Russia's shells and rockets crash down from above. This Ukrainian soldier says he's embarrassed he believes stories of Russia's power. Their only advantage, he says, they fight well against civilians. Artyom is scared, alone, young. He's 18. He was struck down by a Russian shell while walking in the center of Chernihiv. He's being moved to another facility in a car that wasn't designed for passengers like him. Volunteer ambulance drivers are now a vital service as Russia's bombardment tears apart the city and the people who live here, one blast at a time. This is another area Russia said it was going to back off from, the outskirts of Kiev. These images were captured in the Irpin neighborhood by a Ukrainian non-government group. On the same day, Russia said it wanted to reduce risk for people in the capital. It's a gruesome, eerie scene. The quiet streets are filled with debris and death. 
People still lay where they were struck down. Ukraine is in control here now. But Irpin's mayor, Alexander Marakushin, is pleading with people not to return because Russian weapons are still striking frequently. Russia's will to destroy is captured vividly from space. New satellite images of the city of Mariupol give a powerfully wide perspective on the devastation inflicted during four-plus weeks of siege and bombardment. The Russian work here is ruthlessly thorough. Whole blocks, entire neighbourhoods are now destroyed. Russia is determined to conquer Mariupol, even if there's nothing left to rule over. Phil Black, CNN, Lviv, Ukraine. Thanks to Phil Black for that report. Coming up, President Biden rolling up his sleeve to get another COVID booster shot today, his second, just as the CDC recommends for anyone 50 years old and older. But even though this age group can get another shot, shot, should they? Should people over 50 be lining up for the second booster? We're going to get an expert opinion next. And our health lead, President Biden, just became one of the first Americans to get a second booster following the FDA's expansion of the emergency use authorization for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines to allow adults 50 and older to get that fourth shot. But in a somewhat confusing move, the CDC says the new authorization is not an official recommendation. So is it time for Americans over 50 to get a fourth jab or is it not? Here to discuss, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, professor of medicine and surgery at George Washington University and a CNN medical analyst. Uh, Dr. Reiner, the, the lack of a clear endorsement from the CDC is confusing a lot of us old folks over the age of 50 right now. How should we interpret it? Should I go get a second booster? Yeah, you should. And the CDC should have told you uh, to do that. Now, I think the problem with our boosting uh, uh, plan in the United States is that Americans haven't been told forcefully uh, to get boosted. And as a result, only 29% of this country has been boosted. So this whole issue about whether to give a fourth dose really only applies to 29% of the country. And even then, yesterday when the CDC announced that uh, boosters will be available, uh, the uh, CDC director said that Americans over the age of 50 can get a fourth dose. She didn't say they should get a fourth dose. So, you know, the CDC has given Americans permission to get boosted, but isn't giving them firm guidance to do that. I am telling my patients over the age of 50 to get boosted. I will get uh, a booster shot uh, probably tomorrow. It's just weird because Biden got the booster shot today publicly, obviously as a demonstration that he's getting it. Why is there such a disconnect here? First of all, what, what Americans need to understand is that our vaccines, which have been ter- have done a terrific job in terms of keeping us from uh, being hospitalized or keeping us from uh, dying, our vaccine efficacy has waned. And it's waned as a consequence of time. So the longer uh, it, you go from uh, an, uh, an inoculation, the lower your antibody uh, levels get. And also the variants that we've encountered have changed and have are, are a bit less susceptible to, or at least uh, a, a little bit less sort of responsive to our vaccines. So that has set the stage for a need to uh, boost more people. The other thing to understand is that this becomes more important the higher your risk is. 
And what we know, mostly in data from Israel, is that uh, the folks really most uh, at risk of having a bad outcome from a breakthrough infection are people uh, over the age of about uh, 65. There is also some data to suggest that people over the age of 50 benefit in terms of a reduction in hospitalization or death, hence the CDC's recommendation. But because the data is kind of thin, the CDC hasn't made a firm recommendation to the public. And this kind of wishy-washy uh, approach has uh, engendered a lot of doubt in people's minds. When a patient comes to see me for a recommendation, I don't tell them what they can do. I make a recommendation about what they should do. And that's what the CDC should have, had, uh, should have done for this country, told American public what to do. And what I'm telling them to do is if you're over the age of 50 or you're younger than that and have uh, important comorbid uh, conditions, you should get boosted. So you just referred to the fact that vaccine immunity can wane over time, the efficacy of it. So timing makes a difference. Should people hold off on getting second boosters until we move into the fall uh, and the winter when the transmission rates are higher? I mean, we're about to hit the spring and the summer uh, when transmission is is usually much lower. Yeah, except that uh, BA2, the sort of Omicron variant, is on its way to the United States. If you look at uh, case levels over the last uh, you know, few months, they've dropped dramatically, but they've stopped uh, dropping. In the last week, case rates in, in the United States have become flat. And you know, if you and I speak next uh, week at this time, we'll be talking about how they're now starting to rise. BA2 will certainly come to the United States. It's become the dominant variant already, but case rates will, will once again start to rise. Now is the time, uh, if you've been boosted more than four months ago, now is the time to get boosted to protect yourself from uh, this variant, which will surge in the United States over the next four to, four to six weeks. It's really difficult to time this. It's like timing the stock market. I would say if you've been boosted, if you're in an at-risk group, as we discussed, uh, and your booster was uh, more than four months ago, go ahead and get it now. You said the BA2 Omicron subvariant uh, is on its way here. It's, it's actually now the dominant strain in the U.S., as you know, responsible for nearly 55 percent of new infections. So you seem concerned about this, about this uh, miscommunication and, and the chasm between what President Biden did and what the CDC is recommending or not recommending. I'm concerned about BA2 because B. We thought that Omicron, or what we, we now call BA1, was basically the most uh, transmissible virus that anyone alive has ever seen. And what we now know is that BA.2, the variant of Omicron, is about 30% more transmissible. Now, it doesn't appear to be more virulent in terms of uh, uh, the severity of the disease, but more people getting infected will, year, will yield more hospitalizations and will yield more deaths. We've done a terrible time in this. We've, we've, had, we've done a terrible job in this country in terms of vaccinating people and even a worse job in terms of, of boosting them. There's another surge coming uh, to this country and there's been this movement to try and get us back to normal. But still hundreds of people are dying every day and we know with certainty that this variant is coming to the United States. We have followed what's happened in Europe uh, about three weeks out from the beginning of this uh, pandemic. 
It is surging in Europe and it is surging in places that have done a much better job vaccinating their population and boosting their population than the United States. It is certainly coming here. If if you've not been vaccinated, now's the time to do that. And mm-hmm. if you've been boosted, now's the time to get a, a, a second boost. All right, Dr. Jonathan Reiner, thanks. The president's son, Hunter Biden, under investigation. The case is apparently heating up what the Justice Department is examining, the evidence collected and the pressure that this might put on the president. Stay with us. In our politics lead today, the Justice Department's investigation into business dealings involving President Joe Biden's son, Hunter Biden, is heating up. CNN's Paula Reed has new details about what investigators may be focusing on. A federal investigation into Hunter Biden has gained steam in recent months. CNN has learned from multiple sources that a flurry of witnesses have provided testimony and more are expected to talk to investigators in the coming weeks. The U.S. attorney in Delaware is leading the probe into Biden's financial and business activities in foreign countries during the time his father was vice president. The probe, which began as early as 2018, has looked at whether Biden and some of his associates have violated money laundering, tax and foreign lobbying laws, as well as firearm and other regulations. The Justice Department has gathered evidence from lobbyists, business partners and others who have observed Biden's financial dealings. At this point, though, Biden has not been charged with any crimes. I'm cooperating um, completely. And I am absolutely certain, 100 percent certain, that at the end of the investigation, that I will be cleared. These questions have opened President Joe Biden up to political attacks. But according to sources who have been briefed, the president is not under investigation. Where's Hunter? Okay, get get it. So where is Hunter? I want to see Hunter ask these questions. In 2019, the FBI took possession of a laptop purported to belong to Hunter Biden. A computer repairman in Delaware showed reporters a copy of a subpoena. There could be a laptop out there that was stolen from me. There could be that I was hacked. It could be that that was the that it was Russian intelligence. It could be that it was stolen from me. During the 2020 campaign, former President Trump's attorney, Rudy Giuliani, tried to generate media attention for what he said was damning evidence on that laptop. Nobody believes it except his and his good friend, Rudy Giuliani. Investigators initially focused on tax issues and money transfers related to Hunter Biden's business activities in China. They've also examined his role while on the board of the Ukrainian energy company Burisma years ago. Biden has told associates he's paid outstanding tax bills, but then investigators examined the source of the funds to pay those bills. In recent months, investigators have begun discussing the strength of the case and whether more work is needed before seeking a decision on possible charges. We have great confidence in our son. Uh, I am not concerned about any accusations been made against him. The Justice Department and Hunter Biden's attorney both declined to comment on our new reporting. Now, Jake, President Biden has vowed not to interfere in the independence of the Justice Department. And it's notable that early in his presidency, he decided to keep the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney in Delaware overseeing this investigation instead of appointing his own person, as is the usual practice when a new president takes office. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much for that update. We're getting powerful images of what a reported tornado did today in Arkansas. This may be just the beginning of severe weather in the southeastern United States. The damage already done and what might come, that's next.
We have some breaking news for you in our national lead. You're watching video from a town in Arkansas just north of Fayetteville after a likely tornado ripped through town and tossed around trees and power lines. Governor Asa Hutchinson said injuries in the wake of the storm are, quote, significant. And now 50 million, five zero million Americans in the southeast are at risk of severe weather tonight from the same storm system. Bracing for dangerous hurricane force, wind gusts, and intense tornadoes. Let's get right to CNN's Derek Van Dam. Derek, the storm looks massive on radar. How big is it exactly? Yeah, Jake, here we are again in the path of a tornado-warned storm. Uh, It is massive. The tornado watches stretch from southern Illinois, southern Indiana, all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, and it includes places like Jackson, Mississippi, where I'm standing, but also New Orleans that was struck by a powerful EF3 tornado just eight days ago. Uh, We know in the lower North Ninth Ward and the Araby region, still reeling from the devastation left over as this line approaches that area. They need to be specifically concerned about that because there's still debris uh, that is left over from the damage of the storms that rolled through again last week. Uh, Over 9 million people uh, impacted by tornado watches now. And uh, this means that it's such an expansive storm. So many people will feel the impacts of that, and that means the potential for loss of power as well. So we already have over 120,000 customers without power as this storm, the line of storms, expansive line of storms, marches eastward. And Jake mentioned the potential for uh, hurricane force winds or higher. That's 74-mile-per-hour winds or higher. These are known as straight-line winds. If you're looking at the radar, you'll be able to see that line of uh, just discrete thunderstorms uh, forming ahead of the main line of storms that's just to my west. Uh, And a lot of times what happens is we get these strongest winds from the middle levels of the atmosphere that are literally brought down to the surface. They spread out in all directions, and that is when we get those powerful 80-mile-per-hour wind gusts that we are bracing for here with my particular team. Uh, In fact, there is a tornado-warned storm that is just a few miles to my west or northwest. It's just out of shot, uh, but we're keeping a very close eye on that, and we do have the potential uh, to seek shelter where we are currently located in this elevated position. So you're looking at the state capitol directly behind me. As we drove to this location, we experienced damage from the winds in advance of this line of powerful storms approaching our area. There were trees taken down in the governor's mansion, uh, downtown Jackson, Mississippi. The threats tonight, tornadoes, straight-line winds, and uh, nighttime tornadoes as well. Jake, where is it going? Heads up Nashville, heads up Birmingham, and also Atlanta. We have the potential for our severe storms overnight. Jake. All right, Derek Van Dam in Jackson, Mississippi. Thank you so much for that report. Turning to our out-of-this-world lead, we come in peace. After a record 355 days in space, American astronaut Mark Vandehei arrived safely back on planet Earth early this morning, along with two Russian cosmonauts, using a Russian spacecraft. The cooperation between the U.S. and Russia comes, of course, amid these heated tensions over Putin's brutal war against the people of Ukraine. CNN's Kristen Fisher joins us now live with more on this. And Kristen, there was some concern over today's landing, given the geopolitical tensions. How did that play out? Jake, despite all of the bluster from the head of Russia's space agency threatening to pull out of the International Space Station over these U.S. sanctions and threatening to make U.S. astronauts ride on broomsticks to get back. And he also shared this heavily edited video on social media showing two Russian cosmonauts uh, kind of waving goodbye to Mark Vandehei. A lot of people thought that might be Russia threatening to, to leave him on the International Space Station. Despite all of that, 
Look at what was on the big screen in Moscow's mission control when Mark Vandehei and his two Russian cosmonaut crewmates touched down in Kazakhstan early this morning. This big sign right there that said, welcome back, Mark, in both Russian and English. Uh, and then on top of that, look at what was said during the change of command ceremony just yesterday, right before Mark Vandehei and his two Russian crewmates left the space station. This is Russian cosmonaut Anton Shkeplerov. Listen to what he had to say. People uh, have problem on Earth, on orbit. Uh, we are like, uh, we are yeah, not like, we are one crew. And I think uh, ISS is like symbol of the friendship and cooperations. So the war in Ukraine clearly testing this nearly more than two decades long partnership between the U.S. and the Russians up at the International Space Station. But Jake, today proved that so far this partnership uh, is holding despite these massive geopolitical tensions here on Earth. And, you know, it's just remarkable to think where else on Earth, Jake, can you see this level of communication and cooperation between U.S. and Russian government officials right now? Truly remarkable. And they pulled it off today. All right, Kristen Fisher, thank you so much. Appreciate it. A CNN crew just arrived in Ukraine's prime port city, Odessa. The defiant messages to Russians as Putin's army tries to move in. That's next. And welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the sting of the slap scene around the world is not going away. The Academy is meeting to discuss what action they might take against Will Smith for his physical assault against comedian Chris Rock. This as Rock gets ready to take the stage tonight for the first time since the Oscars. Plus, some officials fear it's a disaster in the making. The Biden administration lifting a Trump-era rule that allowed for immediate deportation for undocumented immigrants. Will this new move inspire thousands of migrants to cross the border into the U.S. illegally? And leading this hour with breaking news, Pentagon officials say... They have not seen any evidence that Russia is following through on its pledge to de-escalate its war against Ukraine. The Pentagon warning today Russian troops certainly have not packed up or gone home like the Kremlin claimed they would. And the capital of Kiev is still very much under threat, we're told. CNN senior international correspondent Fred Plykin joins us now live from Kiev, Ukraine. And Fred, Russia has seemed to hit parts of the country harder than ever over the last 24 hours, especially outside Kiev. So what's the reality on the ground right now? Well, the reality is, as you say, is more an escalation than a de-escalation that we've been seeing on the part of the Russians. In fact, just as we're going to air right now, once again, we're hearing multiple rocket launching systems going off in the distance, also hearing thuds as well. And that really is something that we have had throughout the entire day. And, and it is indeed the case that a lot of that fighting is taking place, especially towards the northwest of Kiev and some of the suburbs there. That's also the area from where the Russians wanted to push into the capital, but they were confronted by Ukrainian troops and stopped and then unleashed that firestorm of indirect fire of artillery, which is really hitting the suburbs there. And the one suburb, Jake, that we keep talking about the most is the suburb of Irpin. And today I got as close as possible to that place and saw some really heavy fighting. And we have to warn our viewers that some of what they're about to see is very graphic. Through heavily fortified checkpoints, we reached the edge of Kiev at the suburb Irpin. Suddenly, on top of the artillery barrages... We hear gunfire. Yeah, that's gunfire. Much closer, 
and we have to take cover. This is what it sounds like after Russia said it has scaled down its military operations around Kiev. Even in the calmer moments, the big guns are never silent. This is the final checkpoint before you would reach the district of Irpin, but it's impossible for us to go there right now simply because it's much too dangerous. It's also impossible for the people who lived there to come back to their homes because there's still so much shelling going on and so much unexploded ordnance still on the ground. Irpin was heavily contested between Russian and Ukrainian forces as Vladimir Putin's troops attempted to push through to Kiev. Now, the Ukrainians say they've pushed the Russians back, taken control, and released this graphic video of the aftermath. Buildings and cars destroyed, dead bodies still lying in the streets. Ukraine's security emergency service has now also released this video, showing rescuers taking out at least some of the dead while under fire from Russian artillery. Some of the remaining residents were also brought to safety, including many children, Irpin's mayor tells me. Now Irpin is 100% Ukrainian. We are taking out the wounded and dead bodies. Today and yesterday we evacuated approximately 500 people. Today I myself evacuated about 50 children and 100 adults. The evacuees are brought to this base outside of Irpin. It's not only people. Aid groups are now also evacuating the animals left behind when their owners had to flee, including these puppies. We have volunteers who are going under the fire and picking the animals on the street. So you're going under fire, you're going into Irpin and picking animals yes. up. Yes, yes, yes. The Ukrainian army says it's in the process of pushing Russian troops further out of this area, hoping to silence Putin's guns and restore calm to this once quaint suburb. But Jake, so far those guns certainly aren't silent uh, from what we're hearing right now. One interesting thing, though, that I did pick up today, I actually spoke to the uh, Defense Ministry of Ukraine and to the Interior Ministry. Both say that they do have some indication that some Russian units might indeed be leaving the area around Kiev and going towards Belarus. However, first of all, they don't believe that that's some sort of larger drawdown, and they certainly don't think it's some sort of goodwill gesture by the Russians towards Ukraine. They say simply, quite frankly, that the Russians got beat here, and now they're licking their wounds and drawing some of their forces back, Jake. All right, Fred Plankin reporting live from Kiev. Thank you so much. Turning now to southern Ukraine and the battle for the coastline along the Black Sea, the Kremlin's claim that it might shift its resources and focus to the south and east, have cities such as Odessa on heightened alert. CNN's Ed Lavandera joins us now live from Odessa. And Ed, Odessa and its port have been bracing for a Russian attack for some time now. Tell us what you're seeing. Well, a uh, Ukrainian military official was saying today that uh, they are aware of Russian aircraft carrying out uh, uh, reconnaissance missions uh, around this region. That The situation for right now is at least stable and that they're fighting back where they can. But uh, as the rest of the country here is watching the news and watching how Russian forces are perhaps moving out of the Kyiv region, that really puts this region of Ukraine back in focus. And there's a great deal of concern about what this will mean in the coming days, if not weeks here. Um, as uh, early on, it was suspected that Russian forces would want to move in through eastern Ukraine along the northern edge of the Black Sea coastline, making their way down to Odessa, which would essentially uh, make a Ukraine a landlocked country. 
But as you drive around the city here today, uh, you really don't get a sense that uh, there's a sense of calm. In, in many ways, you know, people going about their daily business. The curfew uh, is in strict enforcement here after nine o'clock at night. But throughout the day, it has been uh, rel relatively interesting to see how many people continue to carry on about their, their normal daily activities. And, and Ed, the, the United Nations Refugee Agency is reporting that it cannot reach some of its employees in Mariupol. Uh, what more are we learning about the situation on the ground there? Well, this news comes as we've seen satellite images from uh, new satellite images from Mariupol to really getting a sense of the devastating destruction that Russian forces have inflicted on that city. And as you mentioned, uh, the, the UN uh, Refugee Agency was said earlier today that some of its employees, uh, they hadn't been able to reach uh, for about a week now. Uh, they have since clarified this to say that it is one employee and that they're working to firm up commitments to create uh, humanitarian corridors that they could use to evacuate people. But that agency is desperately trying to get in touch with one of its employees that they have not spoken to in some time. Jake? for us uh, live from Odessa, Ukraine. Thanks so much. Joining us live to discuss retired Army General George Jawan, the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO from 93 to 97. General, thanks for joining us. A U.S. official tells CNN that American intelligence suggests that Putin is being, quote, misinformed by his advisors about how badly the Russian military is performing in Ukraine. The official suggests that the intelligence shows that Putin's top advisors are, are too afraid to tell him the truth. Um, do you think that's plausible? Uh, and if so, what implications might that have on the ground in Ukraine? It, it may be, Jake, but let's not take a sigh off the ball here. Uh, the, the Russian uh, tactics are to mass forces, try to have a breakthrough and pass echelons through of armor in particular. And we haven't seen that yet. And so I think uh, rather than uh, listening to what Putin, Putin may or may not say, look at the battlefield. And not only see the battlefield, but read the battlefield. That's going to be extremely important. You were Supreme Allied Commander of NATO when Russian troops failed spectacularly in their attack on Grozny, Chechnya, before then returning and obliterating the city from the air and with artillery. These are photos of what was left of that city after the Russians destroyed it. Do you see any parallels between Grozny in the 1990s and what the Russians are doing to Ukraine today? Well, I think uh, they're planning for the same sort of uh, heavy hit on, uh, on Ukraine. Once they get a read of where their forces are and what they have left to fight with, and it may come, it may come fairly quickly here with the very heavy artillery, mortar, missile, aircraft, and uh, other strikes, and so I would not let that up on the accelerator here. And I would tell the Ukrainians to keep taking the fight to the enemy. The New York Times has an opinion column today uh, titled, What if Putin did not miscalculate? It argues that Putin perhaps did not intend to occupy all of Ukraine. He just ultimately wanted the energy and resource rich regions in the east and the south. Um, here's part of that uh, op-ed quote. The conventional wisdom is that Vladimir Putin catastrophically miscalculated. Then again, in war, politics, and life, it's always wiser to treat your adversary as a canny fox, not a crazy fool, unquote. What do you think? Well, I think Putin knows exactly what he's doing. He's tried to disrupt what was the former Warsaw Pact, bring it back under his control. 
and Ukraine is key to that. And not only Ukraine, but then you have the other countries of the Warsaw Pact, the Hungarians, the Czechs, the Poles, etc. And so I think it's extremely important for NATO and the West to really support Ukraine to where they come out on the on the good end of this. And uh, that's going to take a lot of effort. And I would uh, not take anything that Putin is saying with a grain of salt. His uh, aim is to destroy what's left of uh, Ukraine. Right. And Western officials have been expressing skepticism and disbelief about the Kremlin's claims of de-escalation around uh, around Kiev in Ukraine. What parts of uh, Ukraine do you think are at most risk right now? Well, I, you know, I, I think Kiev is still the ma- major objective. And I think we may see something of a guy. That's a, this is this intelligence blanket I want to uh, put over the region for uh, the Ukrainians to understand where the second and third and fourth echelons are and what's happening in Belarus. Belarus has a straight shot at Kiev. So I would watch that very closely, even though th- that looks like they've been pushed back. That may be the breakthrough that uh, that uh, Putin wants. In the south, uh, around uh, M- Mariupol, and what was done there is criminal, as far as I'm concerned, uh, with bombing of, uh, of schools and and maternity wards, uh, et cetera. It's, uh, it's criminal. Uh, but th- those are the... Those are the areas that I think that if he gets the Donbass area lined up with what's occurring uh, down by uh, by uh, Odessa, I think that could be another swing up. But his goal is still going to be Kiev. Do you think there's anything more that NATO should be doing to per- stop this this disastrous attack on on Ukraine and, and the slaughter, even genocide of the Ukrainian people? First of all, the the, the Russian soldier has their, has problems with their leadership. I saw that personally uh, years ago. They don't do maintenance very well. They don't have a good non-commissioned officer corps, and so they their officers are in danger. So the morale is very low. And I think the more you keep banging at them here, I think that that's the way that. Uh, to continue to get disruption with the troops, I, I think it's going to be very important. And so, don't don't take the your foot off the pedal here. You're doing very well. Take a look, particularly at, at what Belarus were that that may light may may light up. But we in the in the West should be painting a very wide intel picture here of, of all the way back to to Russia of what's coming down the road, what, what sort of reinforcements are coming down the road, and, and, and read that where their main attack may come. Because once they get the breakthrough, then they keep pouring in. And uh, that's what we should be trying to tell uh, the Ukrainians. That would help them uh, a great deal, as well as supplying them equipment, et cetera. But the yeah. intelligence picture is extremely important. Retired Army General and former NATO Supreme Allied Commander George Jawan, thank you so much, sir. Appreciate it. They stayed until they just could not stay any longer. How one Ukrainian family found themselves running through a forest full of Russian snipers. That's that's next. 
Continuing with our world lead and another heartbreaking milestone as a result of Vladimir Putin's brutal invasion of Ukraine. According to the United Nations, more than four million refugees have now fled Ukraine. Four million people who just over a month ago were living normal lives in homes they may never see again. Homes that might not even exist anymore. CNN's Matt Rivers is in Hungary right now for us, listening to the stories told by Ukrainians who tried to stay but could not take it any longer. Zahonya train station, just across the border from Ukraine. It's here where refugees fleeing the war touch Hungarian soil for the first time. People have been arriving here since the first days of the war, but these are the people that chose to stay longer, up until they couldn't. People like Elena, who left with her husband and three daughters. How old is she? Five. And she asked if the tank would shoot at us. Yes, because uh, she uh, saw tank every every day, uh, because they. She saw Russian tanks. Russian tanks, a lot wow. of Russian tanks. Elena says Russian soldiers had occupied her village and set up artillery positions, and that Ukrainian forces started to target them. Just a few days ago, she says there was an explosion about 100 meters from her house. Right after it hit. She knew it was time to go. She says, "I thought to myself, I'm 34. I have three children. It can't end like this." So we walked right into the forest for two hours. A Ukrainian soldier then stopped us and told us that there were snipers everywhere. They put us underneath shields and walked us to safety because there were firefights everywhere. They never wanted to leave, she said, but eventually she had no choice. It is a common sentiment from those here who waited for weeks after the invasion to make a brutal decision to flee the only home they've ever known. Olesya Lahuta was one of them. We stayed a really long time after the war started. She says about a month, but every day the sound of the bombing got closer and closer. And our children are small. Our building didn't have a basement, and there was no cover available. So she joined the hundreds of thousands of other Ukrainians that have arrived here in Hungary, and as her kids sit and play in her lap, she gets emotional about the threat to their lives and others. I can't understand why she says, choking up. There are lots of small children who died, and I can't understand the purpose of this war. It's not only my children that are in danger. The Ukrainian prosecutor's office says at least 145 children have died in the war. A number that is almost certainly an undercount. Olesya fled because she didn't want her kids added to the list, and now she gets back on the train, headed toward Budapest, with an uncertain future amidst a horrible war. And Jake, when more trains come here to the first train stop in Hungary, all refugees are actually. Uh, required to get off and be registered here by Hungarian authorities, then they can either stay and go through a visa process here, or they can get back on the train and continue on to Budapest, the capital of Hungary, where there's been a lot of resources uh, set up for people, and then they can go wherever they want uh, within the European Union. Uh, but there are certainly a lot more resources here at place than there were a few weeks ago when this uh, invasion first started. Hungarian authorities finally able to catch their breath a bit and and be able to handle a bit more the hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians. That have crossed the border in recent weeks, Matt. I know you're at that train station for a long time today, several hours.、Uh, what other stories have you heard from refugees? 
Yeah, you know, Jake, the thing that really struck me, you heard it in our piece, the first woman we spoke to, uh, Elena, she walked through the forest to escape Russian troops with her kids, avoiding the roads because she didn't want to get caught in either Russian fire or crossfire. She wasn't the first person that told us that they walked through the forests of northern Ukraine in order to escape the firefight. She was just the only person that would go on camera. But we heard that story at least two other times just today at this train station. And I think what that illustrates is just the extraordinary lengths uh, that families are having to go to escape uh, this ongoing fight in Ukraine. Just heartbreaking stories and so many children uh, involved in all of them. Matt Rivers, thank you so much. Appreciate it. And then there was one. The first Republican senator signals she will support Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson to be confirmed to the U.S. Supreme Court. Will any other Republicans follow? Stay with us. In our politics lead, President Biden's historic pick for the U.S. Supreme Court, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, officially has bipartisan support. Maine Senator Susan Collins locked in Judge Jackson's now seemingly inevitable confirmation in a statement today. Let's get right to CNN's Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. And Manu, you caught up with Senators Collins and also Republican Senator Romney. Uh, What did they have to tell you? Well, in the case of Senator Romney, he's not there yet. While he said that he does praise her qualifications, he said they had a very good meeting. He said that he's still questioning her judicial philosophy. And, of course, he also voted against her last year to the D.C. Circuit. Now, when it comes to Senator Collins, however, she said it doesn't matter if you agree with the judge's decision-making every, in every single case. But she said in the case of Judge Jackson, there's no question about her experience and that she is qualified to serve on the court. I'm sure... Uh, that I won't agree with every decision that she casts on the court. I haven't agreed with every decision that any of the justices for whom I voted have uh, cast on the court. I also don't agree with all the decisions that she's made as a district judge, but I wouldn't expect that. The place I'm really focusing, of course, is judicial philosophy and whether we're on the same page in that regard. And I just caught up with Senator Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who's another potential swing vote. She said she is still evaluating this nomination. She said she may have another meeting with Jackson this week. But that's pretty much it, Jake. The universe of potential yes votes are very small. Three, probably maximum Republican votes. And this could potentially be uh, one of the closest, if not the closest vote of any Supreme Court nomination in history, potentially tying Brett Kavanaugh in 2018 when he was confirmed by just a two-vote margin here because if no other Republican Republicans vote yes, she would get confirmed with a 51-49 vote next week, Jake. And Manu, we're also hearing calls uh, from Democrats uh, for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to recuse himself from some cases relevant to the fact that his wife was involved in January 6th and the fact that that's now being investigated. What are lawmakers saying about that? Yeah, this is coming down almost along party lines, almost like everything else when it comes to the Supreme Court. Democrats are saying at the very least he should recuse. Some liberals in the rank and file on the House side are saying that he should resign altogether. The Democratic leadership is not going that far. But they say he should at least recuse himself, even pushing for even an investigation into what happened here or passing legislation to impose a code of ethics on justices. That is not what Republicans are saying. The number two Senate Republican, John Thune, rejected the idea of any sort of code of ethics. 
Kasich saying he doesn't want to prescribe what the justices can do. And you're hearing top Republicans from Mitch McConnell on down defending Clarence Thomas at all costs, saying that what his wife was doing is different than what the judge was doing. They said, would leave it to the justice to decide whether he should recuse himself. But they said Congress should not intervene. Jake. All right, Manu Raju, thank you so much. Good to see you. Joining us now to discuss on set, John Avalon, CNN senior political analyst, and Margaret Hoover, CNN political commentator. Margaret, let me, let me start with you. You just saw Manu's reporting. Now that Susan Collins has said that she's going to vote for uh, Judge Jackson, do you expect any other Republicans to follow suit? Yeah, I do. I suspect it's very likely that Lisa Murkowski will follow suit. And I think, you know, we all understand first Joe Manchin went, then Susan Collins went. Of course, she just had an election last year. Lisa Murkowski is likely to go next. A, she's already voted for her once. B, Lisa Murkowski has an election this year. And C, actually, even most importantly, I think it is very consistent with Lisa Murkowski's sort of philosophy and approach to the bench. The Senate's role is to advise and consent. Also, Lisa Murkowski is the one other liberal Republican or moderate Republican yeah. in the Senate who is pro-choice, who is, is, uh, wants to return the Senate to the advise and consent role. Also, she has a re-election this year where ranked choice voting is going to be the way that she is re-elected if she wins her seat back again. Murkowski in Alaska? Murkowski does yeah. in Alaska. One of the things Democrats like most about her, who will need to vote for her in the number two slot for her to win, and this yeah. is how ranked choice voting works, is the fact that she didn't vote for Brett Kavanaugh and she voted to convict Donald Trump. So these things are make it even more likely politically that she would do that, even if she weren't inclined to on her own. And, and John, this week a former federal prosecutor told senators that Judge Jackson's sentencing decisions on defendants found guilty of distributing and possessing child pornography, uh, that that was consistent with other judges who handled similar cases. This squares with uh, what Andy McCarthy wrote in the Conservative National yeah. Review when he called that attack on Judge, uh, uh, the judge, on Judge Brown, um, meritless to the point of demagoguery. Obviously, this was led by Josh Hawley uh, of Missouri. Um, do you think we've heard the last of it, or is this what we're going to hear from now on? Well, you haven't heard the last of it from the play to the base crowd, but when you have Andy McCarthy, very conservative, former federal prosecutor, writing a national review saying it's a former demagoguery, He's telling the truth. And that's also important because you need Republicans who are going to stand up to those sort of culture war bombs that are getting thrown. It's all they've got. By polling Marquette University, you know, Judge, you know, is, is one of the most popular nominees to the Supreme Court in recent memory. But you saw people playing the cheap seats, which you got called out for jackassery by, by, uh, by, by Ben Sass. And all they've got in a lot of cases is just the culture war reflexive impulse. Yeah. And it's not just Ben Sass uh, who was raising his eyebrows uh, at the behavior of people like Hawley and Senator Ted Cruz, um, you know, who was asking the judge whether or not babies were racist and that sort of thing. Take a listen uh, to Republican uh, Senator Chuck Grassley, uh, who is the ranking Republican in the Senate Judiciary Committee. He had a town hall on Friday after we all watched Republicans in these, uh, at times, uh, tense confirmation hearings for Judge Jackson. Uh, Take a listen to him talking to an Iowa constituent. Just beat her up really bad, and I think it was just appalling. That's all they could come up with, and the main thing they did this for is so they could get TV time. I'm not going to dispute what you said because I think you described it accurately. Just, just, just in case, just in case, just just to read it. He said, they just beat her up really bad. I think it was just appalling. That's all they could come up with, and the main thing they did this for was to get TV time. And then Grassley said, I'm not going to dispute what you said because I think you described it accurately. He then tried to distance himself 
uh, from other Republicans. Um, and Grassley's a pretty partisan Republican. Mm-hmm. But he, you know what? He's also he's one who respects the institution of the Senate. He is one because he has been so many terms in the Senate, one that respects not the grandeur of it, not the grandstanding of it. And frankly, came from a time before television cameras and Twitter and social media drove one celebrity in the Senate. <laughs> and so he he's just a decent man. I mean, there's a there's a real reason people say Iowa nice. Right. And he's just a decent man who's actually, frankly, reflecting what his constituents probably think and feel like that Josh Hawley act, that Ted Cruz act, that that just doesn't fly in Iowa nice. Well, we'll see. I mean, <laughs> they'll be in Iowa. So we'll we'll see. Yes, uh, and uh, I, I do want to uh, note Jared Kushner is expected to appear voluntarily before the January 6th committee tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, John in the White House says there, uh, he's not going to be able to use executive privilege claims to circumvent any questions about what he knew or didn't know. He did not play a visible role uh, in the buildup to the insurrection or, or that day. What do you think the committee is looking for? It's it's hard to say, but you know I hope he does show up and answer questions. Unlike a lot of close aides, as you say, he wasn't didn't have the proximity that day, as far as we know, of a Dan Scavino and other people who were around the office, or even Ivanka Trump, his wife. Correct, yeah. and, and it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know whether you know they ask her questions about what she might have known because she, according to some accounts, tried to intercede. But look, what we see increasingly is some folks are trying to do the cover up around the president's actions. We have these seven and a half hours of you know where where did the records go? What are the call? And, and the president's getting yeah, the second coming of Rosemary Woods. Uh, it, 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 it is indeed, except exponentially worse. 18 minutes to <laughs> almost eight hours. Um, but but I think that that is important. The, the, while our, our attention has rightly been focused on Ukraine, the January 6th investigation is going forward. And there have been a lot of very significant moments in the last several weeks. And this is potentially another one, seeing what Jared Kushner says. Yeah. And, and Margaret, um, this deluge of, of news comes full circle and it's going to hit the midterms. Yeah. Uh, Republicans are expected to do really well in the midterms. Mm -hmm. But as Playbook wrote in in Politico Mm -hmm. today, one of the few ways Republicans could potentially blow this electoral equivalent of a layup is if former President Donald Trump suddenly returns to center court. He's deadly for the GOP in the decisive suburbs at the heart of 2022 politics. Recall how Virginia's Glenn Youngkin treated Trump like Voldemort, concerned that even uttering his name would repel potential supporters. You know, a little mixed metaphor there with the basketball and the Harry Potter, yeah. but but I, I take their point. Do, do you think Trump needs to sit this one out, and can he even be contained? Like, first of all, no, he can't. Uh, Witness the rally he had for David Perdue three days ago in Georgia. Yeah. He's a thousand percent playing, and by the Georgia, way... And Georgia reporters, sorry to interrupt, Georgia reporters said it's one of the most sparsely right. attended Trump rallies they'd ever seen in that state. Right, so, so no, he can't stay away. The other aspect that Politico's article doesn't really address is the fact that there are Republican on Republican, you know, closed Republican partisan primaries that are going to lead up to those general election votes. And Trump is still very popular with the base, even though he hasn't been front and center on Twitter. Like, so actually he is playing, it is feeding his ego and he is influencing it for the worse. I mean, the worse are candidates. Yeah, he's backing backing some certifiable candidates. I mean, mean that literally. The the seditionists, the white nationalists, the conspiracy theorists. The the people who think the rainbow flag is the Satanist flag. I mean, just crazy. And and, and in some cases, he's distanced himself from people like Mo Brooks, who we endorsed and then faded away. Look, he has a net negative effect on the party, not only in terms of the candidates who may win the nomination, but in terms of the general election and suburban swing votes, this guy's like microwaved fish. He is going to repel people. <laughs> By the way, I have gone into the CNN break room in Washington, D. as somebody microwaved fish. Not a good and I thought that's not, <laughs> no. that is, 
I, I believe, in the Geneva Convention. Margaret and John, thank you so much. Great to see you, too, as always. A surge in terror attacks in another part of the world, killing 11 people. That's next. In our world lead, the alarming rise in terrorism in Israel. Three incidents beginning Tuesday of last week, then on Sunday, then again yesterday, left a total of 11 people dead. ISIS has been blamed for the first two attacks. That's the first time that's happened since 2017. And as CNN's Hadass Gold reports for us now, a Palestinian terrorist group just claimed that they are behind the latest rampage. Mourners packed the streets of the ultra-Orthodox city of B'nai Brak on Wednesday. Funerals for two of the five victims of a deadly terror attack the night before. The third such attack in Israel in just a week. The death toll now at 11 and what officials are calling a new wave of terror. The attack started here when two Ukrainian nationals sitting outside this convenience store right here were shot. Then a driver at the intersection was shot through his window before a father walking his baby son was shot just along this street. The baby was unharmed. Two police officers on a motorcycle engaged the attacker, shooting and killing him, although one of the officers later succumbed to his wounds. Really, it's something that we're very shocked because it's something that never happened in the city at all. And uh, I'm from Jerusalem originally, and over there we knew more of these things. Just last Sunday in Hadera, north of Tel Aviv, two Israeli border police were killed and six passerbys injured in a shooting by two assailants affiliated with ISIS. And the week before, four Israelis were killed in a stabbing and ramming attack in the southern city of Beersheba by a man who had once been arrested for supporting ISIS. Tuesday night's attack was carried out by a Palestinian from the West Bank, with Palestinian militant group the Al-Aqsa Martyrs Brigades claiming responsibility, directly tying the attack as a response to the historic summit earlier this week, where four Arab foreign ministers met with their American and Israeli counterparts in Israel. Prime Minister Naftali Bennett said in a statement that Israel is facing a wave of murderous Arab terrorism, vowing to fight terror with an iron fist. And Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas also condemned Tuesday's attack. Israeli security forces are now on high alert, already bracing for violence in the coming weeks, as tensions had been rising in Jerusalem and the West Bank, especially as the holidays of Ramadan, Passover and Easter coincide this year. And Jake, the Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett is calling on any Israeli citizen who has a license to carry a firearm to now keep their guns with them at all times. Jake. That's chilling. Hadass Gold, thank you so much. Appreciate it. The Biden administration just announced that they're lifting a Trump-era rule that sent migrants back to Mexico if they were caught crossing illegally into the United States. Some officials are warning that lifting this rule could lead to a more severe crisis at the border. Stay with us. In our national lead, a fast-approaching deadline will determine the status of thousands of migrants attempting to cross the U.S. southern border, sources tell CNN, that the CDC is expected to lift a Trump-era pandemic public health rule that allowed Border Patrol to swiftly return some migrants without the opportunity to seek asylum here in the United States. But, as CNN's Rosa Flores reports for us now, American officials are warning that without this rule, a new surge of migrants will be expected attempting to cross into the U.S. Five-year-old Alison Rosero is from Colombia. What's your dream? She wants to be a doctor. 
She is one of more than 140 migrants who, in the span of 30 minutes, were dropped off by Border Patrol at this Del Rio respite center. This month, Border Patrol has dropped off more than 4,400 migrants, says Tiffany Burrow, the director here, more than twice the number in January. I would say that 4,400 is a drop in the bucket. These are migrants who were processed and for some reason allowed into the U.S. And Burrow is bracing for when the Biden administration lifts Title 42, the pandemic public health rule that allows Border Patrol to swiftly return some migrants, mostly to Mexico, without the opportunity to seek asylum. DHS officials preparing for up to 18,000 migrants to attempt to enter the U.S. a day. Are you prepared for Title 42 to lift? I don't think anyone can truly be prepared. In the past two years, 1.7 million migrants have been expelled under the Trump-era rule. This week, the CDC is set to decide if the order is necessary. If you ask the Valverde County Sheriff... I mean, I wish they would extend it. He points to the more than 15,000 migrants who he says camped under a bridge here in September of last year, waiting for immigration authorities to process them. Last year we called it a a crisis. This year we see the same thing here in Del Rio. You know, it's going to be a disaster. Here in the Del Rio sector, Border Patrol has encountered more than 150,000 migrants this fiscal year, a 215 percent increase compared to the same time last year. Yes, Allison shows us the Rio Grande was waist deep when she crossed with her mom and her baby brother. No te dio miedo? Were you scared? Uh, pues, she said she was a little scared. The Biden administration is facing pressure from all sides. Immigration advocates and Democrats who say there is no health basis for keeping the Trump-era rule and from Republicans who have been pushing for Biden's plan to secure the border when Title 42 expires. The sheriff says migrants are waiting just across the Rio Grande in Acuña, Mexico for Title 42 to end. How big are those groups that are in Acuña? Uh, they, weren't able, they weren't able to give me a number. I know that there's people walking up and down the streets everywhere. The Del Rio Border Patrol chief taking to social media to show how large groups of migrants are trying to cross into the U.S. Customs and Border Protection in Del Rio saying some migrant processing facilities have reached capacity. Your message to the Biden administration? You know, it's time to execute a plan. You know, if they got a plan, let's start executing it. You're doing okay? Uh-huh. As for Allison and migrants like her who make a short stop at this respite center, Adios. it's back on buses, this time taking their dreams to destinations across America. What you see behind me is Mexico. According to a federal law enforcement official, up to 60,000 people are waiting in northern Mexico across the river for the Biden administration to lift Title 42, which now we know is expected to lift on May 23rd. Meanwhile, DHS is working under three different scenarios. The most extreme of those scenarios, they're planning and, and expecting, preparing for up to 18,000 migrant encounters a day and holding up to 30,000 migrants. Jake, I talked to the sheriff to get his reaction on this new development, and he says that the federal government better use this time to prepare and, and, and avoid disaster. Jake? All right, Rosa Flores near the U.S.-Mexico border in Del Rio, Texas. Thank you so much. Will he get a slap on the wrist? The Academy meeting right now to determine how or if 
They will punish Best Actor Will Smith for physically assaulting Chris Rock during the Academy Awards. Stay with us. And we close our show with our pop culture lead today. In just a few hours, Chris Rock will take the stand-up stage in Boston. Man, I'd love to be there. It will be his first public appearance since Will Smith physically assaulted him at the Oscars. Right now, leaders of the Academy are meeting to determine whether Smith will face any consequences for his behavior. CNN's Stephanie Elam reports now on the growing fallout from the slap heard around the world. It was sickening. It was absolutely, I physically felt ill. Oscar host Wanda Sykes speaking out to Ellen DeGeneres about Will Smith's slap at the Oscars. And for them to let him stay in that room and enjoy the rest of the show and accept his award, I was like, how gross is this? (laughs) Oh, wow. The onstage incident still touching nerves around the world. Let me say this, there there are consequences. Whoopi Goldberg, among the Academy's Board of Governors, meeting today to discuss an official response. A letter to Academy members saying appropriate action could take a few weeks. There's like a different vibe in here. Oscar host Amy Schumer posting on Instagram she's still triggered and traumatized, adding so much pain in Will Smith, pain he addressed in a recent memoir. When I was nine years old, I watched my father punch my mother in the side of her head so hard that she collapsed. Smith says he blamed himself for the abuse, telling CBS he came to terms with it in recent years. When I was able to forgive my father, I had a shocking realization that I was able to forgive myself. Chris Rock could break his silence tonight in Boston, where he resumes his comedy tour. In my childhood, I was bullied ridiculously. He, too, recently spoke of childhood trauma and how he's learned to control his reaction. So now I I can tell you, um, hey, I didn't like what you said to me, or I didn't like what you, without losing my head. And that last bit there could explain why Chris Rock was so restrained there in that moment. He's getting a lot of credit for not escalating the situation any further. Now, does any of this dismiss what happened? No, but perhaps, Jake, it offers some context. Stephanie Elam, thank you so much. You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at the lead CNN. Don't forget to download our new streaming service, CNN Plus, so you can watch our book club interviews. Our coverage continues now with one Mr. Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. See you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.